A couple days ago on vacation, the boys and I and my father were working on a treehouse in our backyard. And the treehouse has been a, a lot of fun to work on, and, and the, the boys can't really do the nails and the hammering and the, the, the drilling yet, but they were painting and hauling wood and all kinds of things. And we had this extension ladder that's on the side of the treehouse, and that's how we've been getting up and down. And it's an aluminum extension ladder, nice and secure, nice and stable. And I can remember the first time that my boys said, can we go up on the platform, Dad? And I said, okay, and I'm right behind them. And one of my boys gets about six, seven steps up and just starts to shake. And so I, I come up behind him, put my arms around him and help him up. It's like, Dad, this ladder's really tough. It's really high and, and I think it's going to shake. And what if it breaks? And, you know, all the what ifs. And so he finally gets up there and comes down and we're talking about what to do about a ladder. And, and I mentioned, well, you know, I might do a rope ladder through the trap door and, and, and both of my boys look at me and says, that'd be much better, Dad. <laughs> the rope ladder would be much more stable. <laughs> We'd be able to go right up that. And, and Dad, my father is there with me, and, and we pull him over and we say, kids, the, a rope ladder is going to be much more difficult. It, it's just, it, it doesn't have a good anchor, and it, it'll wobble. And, and they're like, no, you're wrong, Dad. I'm like, okay, it's just odd to have a seven-year-old, six-year-old, sorry, don't want to get ahead of that. Six-year-old say, you're wrong. And, and I'm like, okay, why do you think so? And, and he says, and we have a, a little um, swing set with a little, like, three-foot rope ladder that is attached all the way around. And he goes, I go up that just fine. And so in his experience, all he could experience was that rope ladder was fine, and it was stable, and it was easy, and it had to be better than this extension ladder that I was proposing. And Dad and I, again, were saying, you know, kids, this is, this is going to be difficult. Are you sure this is what you want? And we could not convince them. There was no convincing them. So I built a rope ladder. And one of my sons got about two steps up. This isn't very good at all! <laughs> Because when you, when you climb on a rope ladder, do you know what happens? You, you start to go up and your feet go boop. And you're like, ah. And, and he's just hanging on and shaking and, and almost in tears. And he finally said, Dad, you're right. Dad, you're right. The rope ladder is a lot harder. We, we, we've since found some ways to stabilize it a little bit. And they're going up and down it way too quickly now. But I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about understanding. And, and last week, Pastor Andrew talked, as he, as he looked at the first part of Mark chapter 8, it ended with the phrase, and, and Jesus asking the disciples, have you no understanding? Do you still not understand? Do you not yet understand? But the disciples were so locked into what they thought they knew, and what they had experienced, and what they had been taught in their culture, that they could not understand yet. They did not understand yet. It was foreign to them. And Jesus is saying, do you not yet understand? And Jesus had to change them. And had to change their experiences, had to change their thoughts, and give them a new spiritual way of thinking. And it had to come from God. 
And that's where we come to our text today, the question of how do we understand? It's time to understand. And and Pastor Andrew mentioned that last week, that's where, where the story last week ended, and it just left you hanging. Do you not yet understand? And that's because it was just a giant intro for this week's text of, okay, this is where Jesus starts to help them understand. But how do we understand who God is? How do we come to, to a saving faith, but then as we are sanctified, how do we grow in that faith to deepen our understanding of God, to deepen our intimacy with God, who loves us deeply, who wants to be known? How do we go about that? And in these next two scenes that we'll look at this morning, we see the revelation begin with the disciples. We, we see the sightness and I choose that word. I love to make up words, and so this is progressive sightness as a, as a contrast to progressive blindness. And, and we see Jesus healing a blind man physically to teach the disciples how to see spiritually. So turn with me to Mark chapter, chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. Let's dig into these stories. And as we dig into them, See them as more than just a historical fact, which they are, or a historical narrative. But put ourselves in the disciples' place. Put ourselves in the place of a people that are struggling to understand, that want to understand, that Jesus as patiently as a father does with his children, bringing to understanding. Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 22. And we'll look at both scenes in your notes. I think I put scene 1 and scene 2. The first scene is Jesus uses a difficult situation to reveal himself. Jesus uses a difficult, a physical situation to reveal himself. Let's read verses 22 through 26. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I, I, I see men, but, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And as we read that, the story should sound a little bit familiar. Should we recall two weeks ago when we were looking at Mark chapter 7 and, and the deaf and mute man was healed and it's a parallel to that. There's so many elements that are the same and we'll look at why in just a moment. But what a story. As the, right after the phrase, do you not yet understand, they go up to Bethsaida, which is on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Mostly north, but on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And they get there, and the crowds are all around. And in verse 22, and they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. Blindness was a common problem at the time. There was poor hygiene, there was dust everywhere. And so, so a blindness that would come on throughout life and be progressive was pretty common. In this case, we, we really think this man was born sighted. And he lost his sight over time, whether something happened or whether it was a disease or something. But he knew what trees looked like, he knew what men looked like, and he just hadn't been able to see in a long time. 
But a couple of things just as we, we look through this passage. The first is, is notice the words brought and begged. They come to Bethsaida. The, the crowds are everywhere. The healer is here. The celebrity is here. Let's bring everyone and, and, and have him touch them. And they'll be healed. But the idea behind brought and begged is, is that others came and others came alongside this blind man and they brought him to the Savior. And they brought him to Jesus. And this wasn't just, oh, let's go take a walk. Oh, look, there's Jesus. Woo! This was very intentional and, and there was an urgency to it. Brought and begged or pleaded. And so they were interceding on behalf of their friend. And the first point I have there, which, which isn't the main point of the story, but something we dare not miss, is never underestimate the power of intercessory prayer for spiritual growth. Never underestimate the power of intercessory prayer for spiritual growth. You might say, well, why for spiritual growth? Keep in mind this, this healing that Jesus intentionally does is a parallel to the spiritual healing of, of the blindness of the disciples. And these people bring their friend and they, they intercede for him and they beg Christ for him. And Christ looks and has compassion and he heals him. So many times when we think of, well, how do I grow spiritually? How do I know God better? We think of it as a very individual process. I'm going to have my quiet time by myself or with three little kids somewhere around. I'm going to do this by myself. But one of the aspects, if we really want to know God, is what would happen if we found a brother and a sister in Christ and said, pray for me. Pray for me that I know God better this week. Do you think that's the kind of prayer God might answer? Amen. Pray for me. And, and we, we need to quit going it alone when it comes to growing with God and learning about God. And we need to get serious and say, I need to know God better. Never underestimate the power of intercessory prayer for spiritual growth. Jesus here responds to the faith of others. With the deaf and mute man, he responded to the faith of others. With the paralytic man through the roof, he responded to the faith of others. To the prayer of others, to the begging, to the pleading of others. This doesn't mean that we can save people through our faith or through our pleading. I can't pray for someone and, and somehow they're magically saved. In the end, the Holy Spirit has to reveal who He is in their hearts and they have to respond to that. But I can sure pray for them and pray that the Holy Spirit will work in that way. You see, it's, sometimes it's easy to think that prayer doesn't do much. Well, God has it all planned out anyway. But here's the thing. God in His Word sovereignly has declared that part of His plan is answering our prayers. And we can't quite understand how all that works except in my mind, God has decided I'm, I'm choosing to work this way by my own choice. And so when you pray, I now can respond and receive glory and the, the attention comes back to me. And so answered prayer is one of his tools for revealing himself. Who do you need to pray for today? Who around you have you said, I'll pray for you? That you need to actually pray for them. 
as a church, we need to be on our knees for each other. Intercessory prayer is interceding for someone else. Be on our knees for each other and watch what God does. In James 5, verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Think of Hebrews 2, 6. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? And I'm amazed at that because we are, we are the created beings, the created things. He is the creator. And for some reason that I can't comprehend, he is mindful of us. And he cares for us. Never underestimate the power of prayer. We read on verse 23. And in just a precious scene. And he, he being Jesus, he took the blind man by the hand and he led him out of the village. And the picture here is the crowds are everywhere. The friends bring the blind man. The disciples are around. And Jesus takes him by the hand. And interestingly enough, he's not healed right away. Jesus is countering this idea that he's just a magician that heals with a touch. And he takes him by the hand. And you can just picture him weaving through the crowd. And weaving through the streets. And says, let's get out of here. Let's get out of here. And he gets out of the village and he gets away. And there's all kinds of thoughts. Well, why did he do that? And maybe he didn't want people to, to see him as a celebrity even more. And that's probably part of it. But as I see this whole experience, because it goes on to say, and he spit on his eyes. And Andrew did a great job of explaining that that was not as gross to them as it is to us. I was thinking of asking for a volunteer here. No, no. <laughs> but, but to them, the saliva had a healing agent to it. It, it, was, it was therapeutic. And some of the, the writers even wrote about that. Pliny the Elder, just 40 years later, he recommends the use of saliva for eye diseases. It, it, it was thought to have some healing power. But, but the touch is what's important. And, and so Jesus brings him away, and he, he, he puts the saliva on his eyes. He lays his hand on him. Because this blind man can't see anything. And the question is, is this just going to be a magic miracle and he goes on his way and he's healed and is great? Or is this going to be a new revelation about God? About Jesus and who He is? And so he brings him aside so he can know his healer. So he can know what's happening. And so let her be there. Jesus personally cares for the growth of His children. He personally cared for this man. And we, we saw this in story after story where, where Jesus has crowds around him and he stops and focuses on the individual. And I take great joy in that because I know that each of his children he personally cares for. He personally authors their growth. He's responsible for that. And so he takes this man who's on the fringe of society, takes him out of the village, and has some one-on-one time with the man with Jesus. Wow. We read on, and this is where the story gets a little unique, a little interesting. Spit on his eyes, laid hands on him, and asked him, do you see anything? It's the only time we have recorded where Jesus asked if the miracle took? Did the healing take? And the man answers, 
And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. There's trees. You think of Lord of the Rings. And he just can't see clearly. And he sees dimly and everything's a little blurry. Maybe he's a little nearsighted here. And that brings up an interesting dilemma. Why? Why? Did Jesus just just not get it right? Well, we know that's not true. We know that Jesus could heal completely. Different, different authors suggested different things. Some suggested, well, Jesus was doing this to show just how hard this healing was. The healing wasn't hard for God. There was nothing harder about this than, say, raising someone from the dead. It's ridiculous to think of that. Others, and this is a little more plausible, others have said, well, perhaps the man didn't have enough faith. And Jesus was pulling out the faith. And so he healed him partially and then built his faith a little bit more and then healed him the rest of the way. And, and whereas that, that might make sense, does the text support it? And when we come back to understanding God's Word, we need to come back to God's Word. His, as we try to interpret it, it usually explains itself. And in God's Word, what did Jesus just say before the story to the disciples? Do you not yet understand? The story that follows who do you say that I am? And then he starts to talk about his death and the cross and what it means to be the Messiah. And the whole context of this storyline is who is Jesus and do you see him clearly? And so if we want to understand why did Jesus do this two-part healing, he's doing this intentionally to teach a lesson. Not to the man necessarily, but to the disciples. He is still trying to break through and help them understand that He is God Almighty, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And they were struggling with that. And so this two-part healing was about being a parable, a lesson to bring the disciples to that place. Let us see there. When God's answers don't seem to be complete, look for what He is doing. See, God's answers are never incomplete because of an accident. They are never incomplete because of lack of ability. They, were, they are always incomplete because God is trying to do something. And so we pray and we come to Him and we're like, well, that's not the answer I expected. God, you failed me. No, He didn't. He's trying to teach you. Or in this case, He's trying to teach someone else. But so many times we get into this mindset that it has to be all about me. And so everything God does has to be about me. And maybe it's about someone else. Maybe it's about what God is doing in the world. Maybe it's what God is wanting to do to bring someone to Him. And isn't that worth it? And so we see a staged healing. Just, just for fun, we'll, we'll do this with the lights, Don and, and Jeremiah. Picture yourself blind. And we almost didn't, at night this would be really cool. Pretend. So, so the man is blind. And Jesus leads him through the village. Touches his eyes, enters his world. 
cares about him. And he's partially healed. And there's a dimness to it. And it's exciting because he can see something, but it's a little disappointing because he can't see everything clearly yet. So Jesus says, can you see? These people look like trees. They both have trunks, so I guess that's good. And God then touches him and heals him completely. And the lights turn on. And I do that not because we don't know what it means to be blind, but to help us understand the next section. What does it mean to be blind spiritually? We read on, Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored. There's an emphasis on the completed healing there. He saw everything clearly. And he sent him home saying, do not even enter the village. And this is part of the the whole theme of not wanting people to, to respond to the miracles, but to the message. And so we see in this first scene that Jesus used a difficult situation to reveal himself. A man that was blind, a man whose life was, was rocked because of blindness, that is now healed. But a couple of things before we move to the second scene. Turn with me to Isaiah 53, or 35, sorry. Helps if I read it in the right order. Isaiah 35. Because this story is parallel to the story of the healing of the deaf and mute man in chapter 7 that Pastor Andrew talked about. And it's parallel on purpose, intentionally, because Jesus is showing himself to be the Messiah. And in Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, passages they would have been very familiar with, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. And Jesus here is systematically fulfilling prophecy. For him now to to heal the blind man in front of the disciples, right after the deaf and mute man, they would have thought, that's Isaiah. Isaiah, this is, this is like part two. Could it be? Could it be? But it's interesting. In those verses just prior, and keep in mind, this is a, a, the story of the healing of the blind man is a parable for what is actually happening in the hearts of the Pharisees. Just look back in, in Mark, back to the Mark 8 passage, verses 17 and 18. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? And catch this. Having eyes, do you not see? In other words, are you blind? And having ears, do you not hear? Are you deaf? And do you not remember? And so this was a setup to teach the disciples to bring the disciples to the turning point of this gospel, to the turning point of their ministry. See, the question is, you're deaf and you're blind. And if I can heal the deaf, if I can heal the blind, can I heal you? Will you believe? And that's where we come to verse 27. Scene number two, Peter and the disciples finally gain some sight. 
Peter and the disciples finally gain some sight. They realize that Jesus is the Christ. Let's read 27-30 through 30 together. And Jesus went on with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told Him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And He asked them, And he gets pointed here. It's easy to answer for someone else. It's different when we have to to proclaim what we think. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter, I love Peter. He steps up, answers for the disciples. Peter answered him, You are the Christ. You are the Christ. And to get the the impact of that statement, we have to understand that the word Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's not that it's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus the Christ. And the word for Christ there means the Anointed One, or sometimes it's translated the Messiah. The Messiah. And so for Him to say, You are the Christ, He is saying, You are divine. You are the Messiah here to save us. This is huge. As the scales fall off, as we go from dark to dim, and you'll see why I say that in a moment here, you are the anointed one, the the Christ. And he, being Jesus, strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Let's dig into some of the details about this, because these four verses are the turning point of the Gospel of Mark. Up until now, it's all been about who is Jesus. And and sequentially, Jesus showing who He is, that He is the Messiah, that He is God. Now that they get that, the whole rest of the book is about what did Jesus come to do? Okay, let's correct what you think the Messiah should be. And it's the march to the cross. The march to His purpose, to why He came. But let's dig into it a little bit. In verse 27 Jesus went on with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Sort of fun to understand a little bit about that. And Don, I I think we have some pictures that we can put up. Caesarea Philippi is about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It is as far away from Jerusalem and still be on the Israel border that you can get at the time. And so he he goes north. It's on the border of Israel and Gentile regions. And this is a big rock. You can't see the sky above it. But Caesarea Philippi was on the the base of Mount Hermon, and there was this rock here. Now keep in mind, Matthew gives us more of Peter's declaration. And and there's a reason Mark doesn't go there, because Mark is focusing on the Messiah. Matthew's focusing on kingship and some other things. But this is the, the whole sequence where Jesus says, no one has revealed this to you except my Father who is in heaven. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And that could have happened right right in front of this rock. And this rock was a sacred cave at Caesarea Philippi. And this town was the capital for Herod Philip. Herod Philip um, was given this town. um, (coughs) Excuse me. And he renamed it in honor of Caesar, Caesarea, and himself, Philippi. Pretty cool. I have a town. I'm naming it after myself. It was his residence, his capital. Um, but interestingly enough, it was originally called Panion. 
because the, the chief thing, god that they worshipped there was Pan. And this cave was where they would actually sacrifice to Pan, sometimes throw people down there, and sacrifice to the god Pan, who was half man, half goat, considered the god of fright. What word might we get from Pan? Panic. Panic. And so, and this was a cult that was thriving at the time of Jesus still. If we go on to the, the next one, along, this is the overhead view. And there was a temple built here to Pan. And, and also, Herod Philip built a, a, a marble temple to the emperor. And so this was the, this town was known for the worship of Pan and the worship of the emperor. Great place for Peter to say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Accident? No. Jesus here is countering the beliefs of the time, the, the, the pow- one of the power seats of the time. If we go on in this rock, there were carved little alcoves, little niches, and people would put idols in these niches to worship them. I think there's another picture of those. I think, Happy, you took this one, right? When, when he was there. You can see right above the arch, the little cutout, the little niche. And they would put things there. Same thing, just from a, a different view. So that's Caesarea Philippi. It gives us a little bit to understand the Roman association there. It's theologically significant that Jesus chooses this as the place for this declaration. And he asks the question, who do people say that I am? They say John the Baptist, Elijah. We know from Matthew they said Jeremiah. Now understand, people, that means people were still in the dark. They didn't get who Jesus was. They didn't get he was the Messiah. But these were not bad characters. Okay, If you were taking a poll, this would be up there in the popularity poll. These are all people that were considered forerunners to the Messiah or prophets. Some of these were heroes to them. And so people thought highly of Jesus. But that wasn't what he was after. He was after their hearts. and Hearts of repentance. Not just being seen as a good man. And as we read this, this paragraph we are confronted with the same question, who do we say Jesus is? Do we think He's just a good man? If there's those here that don't know Him, what do you know about Him? At this point, throughout all of Mark, we're we're confronted with evidence after evidence after evidence of His deity. A place that we can't just say He was a good man. He was much, much more than that. And in verse 29, like I said, Jesus gets very pointed and says, but who do you say that I am? Who do you, my closest friends, my disciples, the ones that I have poured the most time with out of anyone else on earth, who do you say that I am? And Mark here as a storyteller brings us with that question to a climatic point in the book of Mark. Because up until now, all eight chapters are about who Jesus is. We've seen 
In Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so Mark introduces that this is the theme that he's showing who Jesus is. We saw Jesus heal the demon-possessed man in Capernaum. We saw Him heal Simon's mother-in-law and many others. But people still didn't see that He was the Messiah. We saw Him in chapter 1, verse 40, cleanse the leper as He preached in Galilee and make the leper clean rather than being unclean Himself. And they still didn't see. We saw in chapter 2, He forgave the paralytic. He said, rise, take up your bed and walk. And the people still didn't see the Messiah. He calls a tax collector, eats with unclean sinners, answers the Pharisees about fasting and answers them well and what is right and good to do on the Sabbath. And they still didn't see His authority. Continued to heal and cast out demons and preach. In chapter 4, begins to urge us to be open and cultivated to the Word of God. Teaches on the kingdom knew about the kingdom, taught with authority, and punctuated that with the authority stories, starting with the calming of the sea. He's asleep in the boat in chapter 4. And the disciples panic, and he says, stop, be still to the storm. And it does. And they still didn't see. Casts out legion and shows authority over Satan and sin. Heals the woman with the blood issue in chapter 5. Brings Jairus' daughter back from the dead. Shows authority over sickness and death. And people still didn't capture it because they're fighting the very basis of what they thought and were taught their entire lives that the Messiah should and would be. Feeds the 5,000. Shows himself to be the great shepherd. Then after that, sends the disciples out. They encounter another storm and he walks on water out to them, about to pass them by. And he's testing their faith even though he wasn't present. Heals the sick in Gennesaret. Chapter 7 shows that what comes out of a person, what's in a person's heart is what defiles him, not whether or not his disciples wash their hands. Cast the demon out of the Syrophoenician woman's daughter from a distance. Healed the deaf man in Decapolis. Feeds 4,000 more. Challenges his disciples again. And then he gets to the phrase, do you not yet understand? Do you see with an overview of where we've gone to, in Mark, how Mark is proving point after point his authority and his deity You can't read that without coming to the conclusion He is the Christ. He is the Christ. This is the first declaration of Jesus' divinity by the disciples. Actually by anyone in the book of Mark other than demons. It's significant. But here's the thing. And this is why the healing of the blind man. The disciples were dark. They were blind in their understanding. Peter makes this declaration, and this was hard fought. It would be like if someone taught you your colors wrong your entire life, and you knew that grass was purple and the sky was green and this carpet is orange, 
and then someone after 20 years said, well, actually, that's not quite right. Let's go with blue. And you'd be like, no, no, that, that's what I've known my whole life. And so this was a deep-seated belief that they had to come, that they had to change. And they come to the point of saying, you are the Christ. And the lights don't go on fully. The lights go on part way. This is the, the corresponding to the dim, to the first stage of the healing. An important stage, a vital stage, but the first stage. Because if you read on, a passage we'll explore more next week. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. What? The Messiah isn't going to be killed. And after three days rise again, well, yeah, whatever. And then that would have just gone over their heads at that point because they're still on disciple being killed or the Messiah being killed. And he said this plainly and Peter took him aside, <laughs> love to see this, and began to rebuke him. And so they see a little bit more, but it's, it's a progressive sightness. It's just a, a, a glimpse, an important one, they still don't understand what that means. They're still thinking Messiah King. Come in, destroy the Romans. Woohoo, we're free. And it's a partial sight. But an important sight. And from here we move from who Jesus is to what he will do. As we start the march to the cross, from the furthest point away from Jerusalem, we start the march to Jerusalem. And he sets his face on Jerusalem. A couple of lessons about partial sightness that we need to take out of this. But be, before we get those, again, I come back to who do you say that I am? And this morning, if you don't know who Christ is, if you have never repented of your sins and given your heart to Him, now is the time. Now is the time to say Jesus was more than a man. He is God. And He came to earth and He died on the cross in my place where I should have been. And now is the time to believe on His name and receive eternal life. Don't wait another day. When you read something like, Who do men say that I am? It should stir that in you. For us, it should also stir how well do we know God? How well do we know Him? Have we stopped at just a saving faith? He's Christ, He's the Messiah, and then we're coasting in our Christianity because we're not going any deeper? Because that's not what He wants. That's not what His children do. Or have we cultivated that deeper relationship? that deeper understanding of who He is. The disciples were still only seeing dimly. Jesus would then take the next couple chapters to brighten up their, their vision. But lessons about partial sightness, and we end with these. We have to remember that all of us are still seeing dimly. First one there, be humble about what we think we know. Be humble about what we think we know. Sometimes it's easy 2,000 years later to say, well, we know Christ a lot better. And we know Him fully. No, we don't. 
there's still aha moments. There are still moments where God will just blow you away with who He is and what He will do. There is always more to learn. I mean, what if there weren't any more aha moments? What if we did know everything there was to know about God? Let's think about that side for a moment. What kind of God would that be? He'd be, be like us. He'd be the kind of God that we place on, in that little alcove, that little niche, because we can control it. And No, no, God is, is beyond what we can comprehend. And our whole life will be knowing Him better. And we need to be humble about that. We need to say, I relate to the disciples. It's a little dim in here. It's like, I don't know if you've ever been outside wearing sunglasses, and you come inside and forget you have sunglasses on. Like, man, it's really dark in here. Wish they'd turn up the lights. I can barely read my Bible. And then you're like, oh, I have sunglasses on. We're seeing dimly. It's affecting everything. Second thing. Don't look down on others who think who we think see less than we do. Don't look down on others who we think see less than we do. Human nature just steps in and we love to compare and rank and have a hierarchy and we do that with spiritual growth as well. And we ought not to. The disciples saw partly but Christ was teaching them. See, don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. God is still working on you. You will know Him better tomorrow than today if you let Him. Jesus is the instructor. Jesus told Peter, no one has revealed this to you except my Father who is in heaven. We are in school and our instructor is God Almighty. And if we let Him in the situations we face, even in the difficult situations and the unanswered prayer, in everything that happens, He will reveal Himself to us more and more every day. So don't lose hope. And finally, just a general principle, spiritual truths build on each other. Precept upon precept. See, the disciples had to get to a point of saying Jesus is the Christ before they could get to the point of understanding the cross which is where Jesus is going to go next. One principle leads to another. And so as Christ teaches us, let Him teach us. Don't focus on what you don't know about God. Focus on what God has revealed to you about Himself. Thirst for more, but don't be discouraged because you don't know everything there is to know about God. You won't. You can't. 1 Corinthians 13.12 For now we see as in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Turning point of the Gospel of Mark says know God. Know who He is. He's the Messiah. He's your Messiah. He's your Savior. Lord God, our Father, our Messiah, we stand and we proclaim that you are the Christ. 
with all that that means. That that means you are the anointed one, Jesus. That you are the one that came to save. And Lord, I thank you for not coming as a political Messiah, but for coming as a spiritual Messiah that would pay for the price of all that would come to you. That is why we are able to be here today. That is why we serve you. That is what enables us to be adopted and called sons and daughters of the King. Lord, may we not forget. May we not get tired of Peter's proclamation and our proclamation that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords. We worship you. We give ourselves to you. We proclaim that you are Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.